Well, what's up, Arbor? How are we? It's me, Ryan. I'm back again for another week. <laughs> Last week went so well. They're like, hey, how about you come back and do it again? I didn't get fired. So good start. Some exciting news for our family. We um, moved into our home yesterday. Um, so that was, that was super exciting. I know some of you are like, but I thought it was going to be this Saturday and I was planning on helping you move. You're off the hook, you know? You didn't see the social media post. And listen, you're probably wondering, do I still get those Jesus points in heaven? Um, yeah, I think so, you know? It's the thought that counts. It's the intention. So um, last week, we talked about uncertainty. We talked about how none of us like uncertainty. We um, oftentimes deal with uncertainty by seeking control, or we try to numb the uneasiness of uncertainty um, by seeking comfort. And I think we would all agree that in our world today, there is just this rising degree of uncertainty. Wouldn't you agree with that? A rising level of uncertainty. And I think our collective chaotic human response to this rising uncertainty is one of the primary things that's fostering the increased division in our world. Division in our government, division in our country, division in our neighborhoods or in our homes, and I think sadly, the division that we are seeing and experiencing in churches around the country. You know, as I was preparing for this message this week, I read this Barna study, and it just came out a few weeks ago, and it said this. It said that over the last seven years, there has been a 40% increase in Americans who feel threatened when others disagree with them on topics that are close to their heart. A 40% increase. That's a lot in just seven years. We are significantly more intimidated and defensive when someone disagrees with something that we hold close to our hearts. And, and I, I, I wish that I could say we don't see this in the church, but, but I think we'd all agree that this is something that is very prevalent in our churches, especially over the last couple of years. Whether it's been regarding the mask mandates or the vaccines or, or a variety of political issues, we have seen division take root in our churches. We have seen this take center stage. People have left churches over these things. Churches have begun to lose focus and many churches have just lost the bandwidth to be able to do what Jesus has called them to do because we're so focused on this new reality. Like I remember when the biggest thing we fought about in churches was whether to sing hymns or choruses. Anyone remember those days? Like you had the hymn group over here and you had the chorus group over here and you're like, in order to be a faithful church, we have to sing hymns and people over here were like, but have you heard this new Delirious CD? And if you don't know what Delirious is or a CD is, I can't help you out there, okay? But, but I wish we could go back to that. I remember when that was such a headache, but that would be a relief now. In the midst of all this, it can feel so overwhelming to know, like, what is the way forward? What's the way forward for, for the church, for, for our church? And the more that I've processed this and, and, and thought about this over the last couple of years, the more convinced I am that in order to move forward, we, we, we have to go backward. And I don't mean like back just to like pre-COVID days or, or 20 years ago back or 50 years ago back. I'm talking about like way back back, like 2,000 years ago back. And so in an effort, you know, to, to do that, if you would have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out and open up to the Gospel of Matthew. 
We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and for the next month, we are going to be learning from the greatest sermon ever taught, the sermon that biblical scholar Scott McKnight called the greatest moral document of all time. We're going to be learning from the Sermon on the Mount. And here's why I want us to spend some time in this sermon. I believe that above and beyond anywhere else in God's word, the Sermon on the Mount is the epicenter. It is the core for how we as the church are called to enter into the life of God and enter into the love of Jesus, not only for our own individual growth and gain, but so that we might be able to take that life and take that love and enter into our communities and and share that life and love with with our communities, our coworkers, our neighbors, our friends, even our enemies, and then begin to witness the power of God transform and change those communities and those relationships that we would begin to see the power of God at work bringing supernatural unity to where division once reigned, that we would begin to see the the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Don't you want to see that? through our work, through our effort, through the Spirit's power in our lives. I wanna see that. And so in order to go after that over the next four weeks, we are going to look at four different teachings throughout the Sermon on the Mount that I think will be really relevant for us as a church as we try to navigate our way forward through this season of uncertainty and through this season of division. Cool? Cool, awesome. Um, So there's this common saying, and I'm sure many of you have heard it before, and it goes something like this. In life, you're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're heading into a storm. Have you heard that before? In life, you're either in a storm, you've just come out of a storm, or you're heading into a storm. And there's no way around the storm. Doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how powerful you are, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, the storm is coming. And you could just as easily substitute that word storm for conflict. In life, you're either in a conflict, you've just come out of a conflict, or you're heading into a conflict. Like if you're here at church with young children, chances are you just came out of conflict. (laughs) No shame, I've been there before, it's all good, listen, it's all good. And you might think, you know, I can avoid conflict. I'll just go off the grid, I'll, I'll, I'll move into the woods in a cabin by myself, and listen, you can do that. You can go all Unabomber and get out into the woods and try to avoid conflict, but the second you get out there, listen, you are going to experience conflict with yourself because conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable, and for most of us, we weren't discipled. We weren't trained on how to navigate conflict. For many of us, our parents never set us down and taught us how to navigate through conflict. Many of us never took classes or were discipled in that way. We never learned how to proactively become peacemakers. And and that's exactly what Jesus calls us to be as the church. If you look in Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says this. He teaches, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Simply put, church, we as the people of God, we are called to be peacemakers. This is what we are called to. We are called to be peacemakers because when you see peacemakers in action, the kingdom of God is most plain to see for the people around us. And in our times of increased uncertainty and increased division, this is what our world needs right now. 
Our world needs us to be people who seek and make peace. Jesus, as he was teaching this uh, little beatitude here, blessed are the peacemakers, it's important for us to understand that Jesus wasn't teaching in the most peaceful of circumstances. In Israel at the time, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire. There was great conflict as a result of this, and, and there were a variety of Jewish subgroups that were, um, they had ideas as to how peace should be made for the people of God. And so before we jump into what a peacemaker is and how we as a church are called to be peacemakers, I want us to look at two counterfeit ways of making peace, two wrong ways of engaging with conflict that we see in a variety of the groups uh, during Jesus' time. And the first counterfeit way I want us to look at is the way of the peace killer. And needless to say, we are not called to be peace killers. We are not called to be peace killers. So in Jesus' time, during the Roman occupation of Israel, there was this group of people called the Zealots, okay? The Zealots, and they were these extremist revolutionaries. And they thought that the way to achieve peace was to overthrow Rome, to get rid of Rome. Uh, the central Roman kind of intelligence agency probably would have flagged the Zealots of Israel, Israel as, as like a terrorist group. And if they looked up to anyone, the person that they looked up to in the Old Testament was this guy named Joshua, because Joshua went into the promised land and battle after battle, victory after victory through force, took the land of God for the people of God. Like, have you ever seen those Che Guevara shirts? Like, they probably had shirts that had Joshua's face on it, okay? This was their thing. They were these extremist revolutionaries. And what's so interesting is one of the guys that Jesus picked to be his disciple was a zealot. Does anyone know which one it was? Simon, yeah. It was Simon the Zealot. Simon was a dagger guy. That was his thing. He had the Joshua t-shirt and everything, and he thought that the way to achieve peace in Israel was by overthrowing Rome. And what's so interesting is as Jesus, if you can just imagine it, as Jesus is teaching this beatitude, at his feet was sitting Simon the Zealot. As Jesus didn't teach, blessed are the peace killers, he didn't teach blessed are the extremist revolutionaries. No, no. He taught blessed are the what? The peacemakers. Jesus was in essence saying, yes, we, we do need a revolution. And yes, we want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But not through force. Not through violence. But by entering into conflict and making peace. That's what Jesus wanted. Now for some of us, listen, causing conflict is like second nature, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we wake up and we choose violence, right? That's kind of our MO. We might not be good at making peace, but we are good at stirring the pot. We are good at entering in and, and, and stirring it up and, and causing conflict. And we think, here's this issue that I have to face right now, and I'm going to face it head on, and I'm going to give them everything I got. And listen, we can stir things up in big ways, you know, whether it's politically or racially or all those things. It can be trivial things, too. It can be really small things. Like, for instance, I told you last week I'm a Bears fan, right? You guys know this now? I'm a Bears fan, and we, uh, okay, come on, relax, all right? <laughs> Let's not kill the peace just yet. I'm about to kill the peace, okay? Get ready. Here we go. And we, we, we're not a great, we've not been a great team with like quarterbacks and stuff. We have like this run first offense. Like that's kind of our thing. But I could kill the peace right now. I could kill the peace right now if I were just to bring up a little fact that back in Super Bowl 49, 
you guys should have run the ball. You should have given it to Lynch. And now some of you woke up today and you weren't expecting to hear that. And you probably didn't want to hear that, but you heard it anyway, right? And, you, and I chose violence right now. I chose it, okay? And it can be over something really small. Like I could hop on Facebook after this and I could post something like, listen, I don't care what any of you say, Burger King french fries are better than McDonald's french fries. I don't even subscribe to that opinion, but let me tell you, it would still be a bloodbath in the comments. It would. Someone would be like, hey, no, no, Wendy's french fries are the best. And there would just be all these gifs shared and it would just be a total disaster on the, um, wait, did I just cause conflict by saying gif? That's the correct pronunciation, by the way. Did you also know that the correct pronunciation of almond is almond? <laughs> the L is silent, okay? I did it. There you go. Yes. That's because it's in our DNA to make peace. To, I mean, to, to not make peace, sorry. <laughs> Got me really flustered here, folks. Some of us are just inclined to be peace killers. That's our MO. We are inclined to, to pick up our swords and defend ourselves and defend our preferences and defend our identities. In fact, I think this is why things have gotten so divided politically. We have so tied our identities to a political ideology. And listen, you can vote for whoever you want to vote for. This is a free country. But so many of us have so closely tied our identity to I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican that when someone disagrees with us, we begin to get violent, maybe not physically, but emotionally and with our words, even against people who attend the same church as us, people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet Jesus calls us to be different. He calls us to be different. We are not called to find our identities in some sort of political ideology or some sort of movement or some sort of philosophy. Because when we do that, when we root our identities in those things, we begin to become peace killers. And we are not called to be peace killers. Now, I know some of you are listening to that right now and you're like, listen, for me, stirring the pot, causing conflict, that's like the last thing I want to do. I'm not a peace killer, no. No, you, you, might, you might identify with this idea of being a peacekeeper. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like something Jesus would be all about. I, I'm a peacekeeper. But listen, we are not called to be peacekeepers either. We're not called to be peacekeepers either. So on one side of the fence, you had the zealots. You had this kind of revolutionary terrorist group on the one side, and on the other side of the fence, you had this group called the Sadducees. Have you ever heard of the Sadducees before? Probably reading the Gospels, you see, you know, they're usually in tandem with the Pharisees, but the thing about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they, they had almost nothing in common except for the fact that they both hated Jesus. They're like, oh, you hate Jesus? Me too. All right, let's do this together. Let's hate Jesus together. But they were so different, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The, the Sadducees were probably undeniably the most powerful group amongst the Israelites. They held the high temple. They were, they were the priests in Jerusalem. And they were also deeply intertwined with the Roman Empire. Because they thought to themselves, there's no chance we stand against this Roman Empire, so why would we enter into conflict with them? Let's partner with them. Let's go with the flow in order to preserve our power, in order to maintain our privileges, in order to maintain our status quo. The Sadducees, they kept the peace. They were simply 
peacekeepers. And my guess is that if we were to survey this room today, many of us in this room would be peacekeepers. Anyone can identify with the peacekeeper? Is this kind of maybe your MO, the peacekeeper? You, you hear about peace killing and you're like, no, I'm not about that. That kind of conflict stirring the pot, that's not me at all. But peacekeeping, that's me. It's like that Drake meme. Have you ever seen this Drake meme before? Right here. Peace killing, you're like, no. But peacekeeping, you're like, yeah. Some of you are like, I've never seen that and I have no idea what that is. Don't worry about it. It's about to leave the screen right now. There we go. Okay. We buy into peacekeeping because for many of us, it sounds like something Jesus would be for. But listen, while a peace killer retaliates with violence, a peacekeeper appeases with silence. While a peace killer retaliates with violence, a peacekeeper appeases with silence. And whether your primary way of addressing conflict is through violence or silence, I'll tell you what we're not making. We're not making true and lasting peace. Peacekeeping is not peacemaking because peacekeeping simply says, don't rock the boat. Peacekeeping says, make sure no one gets uncomfortable. Make sure no one gets upset. We have to understand that peacekeeping is ultimately rooted in fear and conflict avoidance and maintaining the status quo. It appeases people and it might keep the peace for a moment, but sooner or later that conflict is going to rear its ugly head and it's going to come back up through the surface. It might take five weeks. It might take five months. It might take five years but that conflict is going to rear its ugly head because it was never dealt with. And some of us who are more biblically inclined, we might try to baptize this belief with the Bible and we might quote 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 11, which says, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do, to do so more and more, to aspire to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business. And we might say, see, see, look, God doesn't want me to to enter into that matter that doesn't seem to involve me at all. And so I'm gonna keep that at arm's length and, and not do anything about it. Others of us, we might jump over to Romans, Romans 12, 8 where Paul writes this, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. And we might say, see, look, if I were to speak into that, if I were to lovingly share truth into that situation, if I were to enter into that injustice or that wrong, I'm just gonna be stirring the pot and causing more conflict. I'm called to live peaceably. And whether we use those verses or whatever it might be, however we try to baptize this belief with the Bible, what we have to understand is that if those are the verses we're using to to simply be peacekeepers, we're, we're not truly applying this, how Jesus would want us to apply these verses. And we have to understand that this way of peacekeeping, it's rooted in fear. It's rooted in people-pleasing. It's rooted in appeasing so we can simply move on with the smoothest, easiest life for ourselves and in no way, shape, or form are we truly making peace. Remember what we said at the beginning. In life, you're either in a conflict, you've just come out of a conflict, or you're heading into a conflict. We can sum that up, three simple words. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable, and so we have to start, we as a church, we have to stop seeing conflict as an obstacle to be avoided, and we must begin to see conflict as an opportunity to practice peacemaking. 
That's the courageous, bold step that the Spirit would call us to make today to stop seeing conflict as this obstacle to be avoided and we must start seeing it as an opportunity to practice peacemaking. And so when conflict rises up in a friendship, when conflict rises up here at the church, when conflict rises up in the workplace, would we be so bold to enter into that to bring true and lasting peace? So let's talk about that now. Let's talk about the way of peacemaking. And I think it goes without saying, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Jesus is the quintessential peacemaker. That's who Jesus is. It's who he was, it's who he is. It's at the very fabric of why Jesus came. And as we look at the life of Christ, we see that he did not avoid his way to making peace. He did not ignore or neglect his way to making peace. He engaged in conflict in order to make peace. That's the way of Jesus. Jesus did not say blessed are the peace dreamers. He didn't say blessed are the peace wishers or blessed are the peace lovers or blessed are the peacekeepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because peace doesn't just magically happen. It has to be made. So then what is a peacemaker? Well, a peacemaker is someone who actively seeks to reconcile others to God and to each other. That's our role. That's what a peacemaker is. A peacemaker is someone who actively seeks to reconcile people to God and to one another. And those relationships are so important, our relationship with God, our relationship with others, but they're not just important, they're so deeply intertwined. Like you can't have peace with others until you have true peace with God, yeah? And, and, and unless you uh, have true peace with God, you're not going to be able to foster true peace in relationships. This, this Hebrew word for peace, do you know what this Hebrew word was? Shalom, yeah, exactly. And it could be used casually as a greeting, like hello or goodbye, like aloha in Hawaiian. But it also is this deeply theological word as well. And, and I think for many of us, we think peace means the absence of conflict, right? That's maybe a definition for peace, but this idea of shalom was so much more. True peace is not simply the absence of conflict. True peace is harmony and wholeness and healthiness in our relationship with God and in our relationship with others. That's what true peace is. Peace isn't the absence of something. Peace is an actual thing. It's harmony, it's healthiness, it's wholeness in our relationship with God and with others. And so the peace killer and the peacekeeper, when they're going after peace, they've got that latter deficient definition of peace, the absence of conflict. That's what they're going after. When we take up that mode of peace killer or peacekeeper, that's the definition we're using and it shapes the way we try to make peace. It shapes it. As peace killers and peacekeepers, when we are ruled by this definition of the absence of conflict, we typically notice a problem, then we diagnose the issue from afar, and then we solve it with violence or silence. And as I mentioned earlier, while this might create surface peace for a while, we never fostered the real thing, and so peace will not last. But now the peacekeeper, the peacekeeper's different. Peacekeeper isn't driven by this definition of the absence of conflict. The peacekeeper is motivated to create healthiness and harmony and wholeness in the relationship with God and with others. And so as a result 
our, our very method of doing it is completely different. And instead of simply noticing, diagnosing, solving, and then walking away, we see, we immerse, and we contend. That's what we do, because that's what Jesus did. And so here's what that would look like in detail. Instead of simply noticing a problem, the peacekeeper knows that at the heart of most problems is a hurting person, is a group of broken people. And so instead of noticing the problem, we see the person through Jesus' eyes. That's what the peacemaker does. We see the problem through Jesus' eyes, and part of this involves understanding and repenting of the way that we see people. Because whether we were raised in a certain home or a certain culture, some of us were taught to see different people as valuable and other people as invisible. But Jesus didn't have those categories. Jesus didn't see people that way. Jesus saw every single person as an image bearer of God, full of divine dignity, gifted to them by God. And so when we talk about seeing people the way Jesus sees people, that's how we have to start as we begin to engage with this process of peacemaking. We must see people through Jesus' eyes because it's only when we begin to do that that we can enter into the next phase of what Jesus calls us to, and that's immerse ourselves in their story. We must immerse ourselves in others' stories. And and here's what I mean by that. If we have a disagreement with someone or we see someone suffering or hurting or lacking that true peace in their lives, we can't simply hold them at arm's length and try to deal with that problem. We must engage with them and immerse ourselves in their story because this is exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? Jesus didn't just hold us at arm's length as he saw that we lacked true peace in our souls and our hearts in this world. He immersed himself in our story. That's what we said last week. He hurt like we hurt. He hungered like we hungered. He suffered like we suffered. He immersed himself in our story and we must do the same. And as we engage with others, we don't just engage with them and immerse ourselves in their story to save them. We immerse ourselves in others' stories in order to learn from them and to truly love them well. And so we see, we immerse, and as we begin to do those things, then we are able to most effectively enter into the best part of the peacemaking process, which is to contend for peace on others' behalf. Contend for peace on their behalf. See, immerse, contend. When we contend for others, whether it's someone who's been wrongly hurt or a community in conflict or a relationship or a person who's been in a relationship where they've been betrayed or, or hurt in some way, what we'll see as we begin to contend for peace on their behalf is that we begin to wrestle with the complexity of their situation. When we immerse ourselves in their story, we begin to see that the problem wasn't as simple as we thought it was that it was actually far more complex. And what's so great about that is that it propels us to a spirit-led dependence as we engage with them and begin to see that the way of making peace is oftentimes extremely creative and very counterintuitive to the way of the world. And again, this is exactly what Jesus did. He saw us as we really are, full of divine dignity, as his beloved, and moved by his love, he immersed himself into our story. He immersed himself into our story. 
He left his privilege and he began to contend for peace on our behalf, for our shalom. But the way that Jesus did this, as, as many of us know, did not look the way others thought it should look. Like to bring Simon the Zealot back into the story, he had a very specific way that he thought Jesus should contend for the peace of God's people. He thought that Jesus should use might to overthrow Roman rule. That the way to make peace was through, through the sword, was through, was through violence. And yet what Jesus showed us is that he made peace through suffering and through self-sacrifice. That the way to making peace was through the cross. Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus reconciled all things by making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And so contending for peace is oftentimes cross-shaped. As we begin to be peacemakers, it oftentimes involves self-sacrifice and looks very counterintuitive to the way of the world. Like when I begin to contend for peace, when we contend for peace in our marriages, it should be cross-shaped. I should be willing to lay down my life and set aside my preferences for my spouse even when it's the last thing I want to do. Sometimes it looks like being bold enough to speak up and lovingly, patiently share the truth when that's the last thing I want to do in my relationship. Making peace in our workplaces should be cross-shaped. When we engage in our workplaces, we should be willing to speak up for those who don't have a voice, jeopardizing our position and our status quo in order to usher in shalom into our workplaces. We should engage in our workplaces in such a way where we're not so focused on how we might advance, but how we might be able to advance our entire group, our team, the entire workplace. Seeking shalom in our church should be cross-shaped. It should be cross-shaped. That means that we, that we join together, hand in hand, arm in arm, to build a place where people could experience wholeness and healing and harmony in their relationship with God and with others, and even if that means setting aside my preferences or my desires for what I think my church should look like. This is our calling as a church. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be a people who pursue wholeness and healing and harmony, pursuing it for others in the relationship with God and with one another. And as wonderful as this calling sounds, it's not for the faint of heart. Peacemaking is oftentimes met with opposition. In fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that the beatitude that immediately follows Matthew 5, 9 is this one, where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And so as we pursue the way of peacemaking, would we plan on opposition? Would we plan on opposition? Because in order to make peace, oftentimes, we have to enter into hostile territory, don't we? Territory where we're not wanted. We have to enter into spaces and places of unhealth and disunity uh, where false peace has been made in order to show that there is a better way forward. True and lasting peace, true and lasting shalom. You know, knowing that the pursuit of peace would cost him his life. Jesus didn't shy away from conflict. In fact, he entered into the heart of conflict in order to make peace. 
entered into the very heart knowing that he would experience this adversity, this opposition, this persecution to the point of death. But what I find so awesome and beautiful about this is do you know what Jesus' very first words to his disciples were after he resurrected from the dead? Do you know what his very first word was? Peace. Peace. Because that's what Jesus came to accomplish for us was peace. John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. But I do not, listen this part, but I do not give it to you as the world does. And so now this peace that we so graciously have from Jesus, we are now called to bring this in to the world. And as daunting as it may be to be actual true peacemakers in this world, would we be encouraged by the second half of this beatitude? Let's not forget it. What does it say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Listen, if you have peace with God, you are a child of God. And that is such a gift. With that identity comes all the privileges and security of being a child of the Most High. That is your primary identity as a follower of Jesus, is a child of God. And so in a world of increased division and rising uncertainty where identities are fractured and challenged and we grow so defensive over those identities, we as followers of Jesus have the security of resting in an identity that cannot be shaken. We are children of God. You know, I remember... This is many years ago now, like almost 14 years ago when Carrie and I um, were having our first kid, Ethan. And we were living in Florida at the time and, and we were so excited and there was so much anticipation and we got to the hospital and it was almost unbearable and, and I don't think I knew what I was getting into. Carrie might have, but man, you know, we get to the hospital and the whole time she is absolutely superhuman. The whole time. I, on the other hand, almost fainted. They had to get me juice and crackers in order to keep my blood. I'm not even kidding you. It's not a proud moment for me. That really happened to me. And so once I was all juiced and crackered up, I was ready to go, you know. But, but I remember, I remember like it was yesterday when our firstborn, when Ethan, he came into this world and like most babies, he came in, he was crying and the nurses took him and they cleaned him up and they wrapped him up and he was still crying and they brought him over to Carrie and, and, and they set him on her and he was still crying. But I'll never forget, I'll never forget the moment when Carrie whispered to him as he's crying, she said, Ethan, Ethan, it's me, your mommy. And he stopped crying. Like total peace. It was almost like this, this child of ours heard his identity there and was comforted and secure in that moment. And you see our identity as children of God. And I could tell as I shared that, some of you were like, but what does that even mean? I totally understand that because we've so acquainted ourselves with other identities that, that, that we don't recognize what we really have as children of God. And this identity as children of God, it provides that same sense of peace and security and comfort that equips us and, and enables us to go into the heart of conflict and make peace. Because we have this identity that is not shaken. And so church, as we leave this place today, this is our calling. We are called to be peacemakers. And so secure in our identities as children of God, would we obediently move forward from this place and would we see people 
as Jesus sees them? Would we immerse ourselves in their stories and would we bravely and courageously and led by the Spirit contend for peace on their behalf? Would we, would we bring this peace, this true shalom into every place and space that we enter into? Every single person that Jesus brings into our own individual circles and would we rejoice as we see many people come to know their true identity as children of God as they are restored to peace with God, amen? amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for making peace for us, for sending your son Jesus to enter into the heart of conflict and restore our relationship with you because that's where it all begins, finding peace in our relationship with you. But Lord, how easily we stray into other ways. You call us to make peace, but how easily we stray into into other ways of killing peace and, and simply keeping the peace, God. Would you help us to understand what we're inclined to do, God, and would you, would you draw us by your spirit into this way of actually making peace? Would we look to Jesus, the quintessential peacemaker, the one who, who entered into the heart of conflict on our behalf and restored our relationship with you, and God, would you equip us by your power to enter into the heart of conflict ourselves, and, and would we see others as you see them? Would we immerse ourselves in their story, and would we contend for peace on their behalf? And each and every situation is gonna be different, God, and so we pray that we would be dependent on your spirit. We learned last week, God, that we are not called to be dependent on ourselves, but we are called to be dependent on you. And so, Jesus, would you help us to continue to be dependent upon you as we, as a church, navigate our way forward in these uncertain and divisive times? Would you help us to be the church you've called us to be, God? Bless our efforts, God. Would you be glorified in all of it, we pray. Amen.